the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, Monday, Tuesday. We did that. We did Wednesday. Today must be Thursday to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today we're looking forward to sharing a conversation with David Riffle. He's the author of Mentoring Warriors, Coming Alongside Men 18 to 30 Years Old. The book is published by Karis, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation that's coming up. Also, we want to bring you up to date on what happened to the Finnish MP, the member of parliament, and bishop uh, who uh, were charged with hate crimes for uh, expressing a biblical view on sexual uh, sexuality issues. We'll bring you up to date, and it's an encouraging outcome, although the story may not be fully ended. Anyway, that, that's coming up in the second hour as well. Well, I was uh, not shocked because this is becoming more common, but I was saddened to learn that Portland's Mall 205 is finally giving up the ghost. That's how they put it uh, today on um, uh, KGW online. Most small businesses in Mall 205's indoor space have been empty for years, they tell us, and those that remain will close on the 31st of March. Today is the 31st of March, and Mall 205 will be no more. Now, there's some anchor stores around there. I suppose they'll remain open. I know that um, Target is connected to the mall. Uh, there's a Home Depot that's off to one side. They'll remain, but Mall 205, as we have known it, will be no more. They say spring is a season of rebirth, but at Mall 205 Southeast Portland, it's also the death of its old mall business. Um, it's a model that seems to be fading away, at least in our communities. But depending on who you ask, that, uh, that's been happening for a very long time. One of the uh, individuals visiting the DMV, which is also there, by the way, said it was so dead like a ghost town. I know I visited the DMV just a few months ago, and it was really very quiet there. I remember when Mall 205 was kind of a happening place. It was one of a few malls that was available, and it was exciting to go there. That's no longer the case. Well, on Wednesday, only two small stores were open in the once-thriving indoor shopping space. One of those stores was Demba, a sports merchandise kiosk. So it wasn't actually a brick-and-mortar. It was a kiosk. They keep telling me this mall used to be the best mall, said the owner of that uh, of that kiosk. But unfortunately... It isn't any longer. Well, down the way uh, from that kiosk, uh, the All-American Magic was located. Amber Caitlin and her husband have owned that business for nearly 10 years for both businesses. Today is the last day at Mall 205. It's uh, it's kind of sad to see a bit of history uh, go away. Mall 205 opened in 1970. I remember it well. Old newspaper ads harken back to its heyday. Montgomery Ward gave away a 1971 Gremlin. Boy, that that's looking back at its grand opening and the mall touted its climate controlled environment. Parents would shop while kids would play. And, um, you know, a lot of us who were fairly young at that point enjoyed just that. It was like the place to hang out. Well, recent renovations brought in big stores like Target and Home Depot and the DMV. Uh, traditional mall space shrunk 
you didn't see a lot of other stores. I think Bed Bath & Beyond has been there. I, I'm not sure if they remained open until the end. Uh, but lots of the tenants left. So did um, the customers. And eventually those big stores walled off their mall entrances for security reasons. Uh, that really impacted all of the businesses that remained, and it just simply slipped away. In a twist of irony, uh, the two store owners I mentioned earlier are moving their businesses to the Lloyd Center, <laughs> a mall that many thought is also dying. It's a bit of a ghost town, although it has some areas that are still thriving. All of its anchor stores are gone. There's no Nordstrom. There's no Macy's. Uh, but new owners, uh, they're out of the Seattle area. They're renovating the mall and they're seeking new tenants. It's going to be housing and offices as well as some retail space. Tell everybody to come see us at Lloyd Center, uh, said uh, one of the store owners. So if you missed the few places that were still open at Mall 205, you might be able to find them in the near term at Lloyd Center. So there you have it. Just another piece of history fading into the background. I think about my mother, who's 91 years old. Uh, She grew up in Portland. She was born in California and while an infant came to Portland where the rest of the family was. She lived and grew up here. She married here. She raised us here. And I think about all of the things she has witnessed over that period of 91 years. Um, And I'm as a 65 year old woman thinking of the changes that I've witnessed. And it's really quite remarkable as you grow older, how uh, you see things change and how you interpret that. And it sort of, I don't know, puts things into a. A dimmer light, perhaps. All right, enough of that nostalgia. Let's take a look at some of the uh, the headline news. The president uh, said that he's going to tap into uh, 180 million barrels of government oil reserves to help tamp down near record high fuel prices. It's an unprecedented government intervention into oil markets at a time of international crisis. Bottom line, the president said, is that we want lower prices. We have to have more oil supply right now, end quote. Well, it's kind of interesting because he came into the White House saying that oil was going to be no more, period. We were moving on to other things, and he's been uh, part of the problem. But now he's got an emergency, and this is one way to try to deal with it. He said the money made... Uh, making this oil reserve available. We'll restock it at some point in the future. The decision to release oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, it's an expected average of one million barrels daily, which sounds like a lot until you spread that across the fruited plains, and it's not really very much. It was made by the president after consulting with allies and partners, the White House said. It would be the largest oil release in history, nearly four times as large as any other from the government's emergency stockpile, according to some analysts' estimates. Well, the action I'm calling for will make a difference over time. But the truth is, it takes companies months, not days, to increase production, the president said. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up. Later this year, I'm not sure what production he's referring to because we're begging countries that we don't like very much to produce oil. And many of them are simply shrugging their shoulders and saying no. So we'll see what happens. Also, um, outlets that are pumping uh, gas, pumping oil now, they uh, already have their supply. So it'll be a while once that runs out and this new reserve is available, then prices we might see go down. But uh, those those uh, prices that are currently in the pumps are already set. So we'll see what happens. The oil release, which uh, the White House officials said would start in May, comes as part of a package that moves to um, head off an energy crisis that some fear may result from uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but began far sooner than that. Mr. Biden said that he also wants Congress to push oil companies to drill faster on federal leases and that he would invoke the Defense Production Act to boost domestic output 
uh, of minerals used in batteries for electric vehicles and other clean energy technology. Now, it sounds so simple. You just simply crack the whip and these companies begin pumping oil. But the process that they have to go through to get to that point is very rigorous. And there are currently um, dozens of lawsuits against companies that want to drill, environmentalists uh, challenging them to do that. And so it's not quite the simple process that it may sound. Anyway, we'll follow the story as it develops. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a key inflation metric monitored by the Federal Reserve soared to 6.4% in February, compared to a year ago, reaching a new 40-year high. The latest price surge that affected the price of fuel, groceries, and other consumer essentials represents the largest year-over-year increase since January of 1982, according to data released by the Commerce Department on Thursday. Not taking into account food and energy fluctuations that tend to be more erratic and can overemphasize inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, the preferred inflation gauge for the Federal Reserve, jumped 5.4% in February from a year prior, including gas and groceries, PCE, it surged 6.4%. Well, with persistent supply chain problems, the inflationary pressures have intensified due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine which has suffocated energy markets, triggered a chain reaction of price leaps across other sectors. Consumer spending in February, only 0.2%, fell below projections of 0.5%, showing that the mounting inflation has imposed significant costs on American wallets, uh, namely the... uh, uh, the purchase power Americans once enjoyed. Well, the increase in disposable income, 0.4% for the month, also missed the 0.5% projections, and real disposable income dropped 0.2%, factoring in the rising cost of living nearly nationwide. So the pressure is being felt. Meanwhile, the FEC has fined Hillary Clinton and the uh, Democratic National Convention. Uh, Con- Committee, let's get the word right. Well, as the Washington Examiner reports, the Federal Elections Commission has fined the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign for lying about the funding of the infamous and discredited Russian dossier used in a smear attempt against Donald Trump weeks before he shocked the world with his 2016 presidential victory. And we know what you're thinking better late than never, and you'd be right. Uh, we've known about this and reported about it for some time. We watched as um, Fraudulent allegations of Russian collusion plagued uh, uh, an administration from its onset. And uh, as we look at the amount of the fines meted out to by Joe Biden's FEC, $8,000 for the Clinton campaign and $105,000 for the DNC, you can't help but think that this is um, a way of trying to forthrightly admit to some minor degree of wrongfulness while at the same time laughing at their uh, knuckle-dragging accusers. Well, indeed... They'd love it if we uh, would just let it go away, but apparently that's not going to be the case. The investigation continues, and we'll see what happens next. Looking at other headlines, Chris Rock returned, although some are not happy. The comedian kicked off his show on Wednesday, his first stand-up show since Will Smith slapped his face at the Oscars, telling the boisterous audience, let me do my show, y'all. Y'all got me misty. Uh, But not all fans were happy when the show ended, with some asking for their money back. So... Business as usual, it seems to me that's about par for the course 
in a comedy show. He was met with a um, standing ovation when he arrived at the stage. He didn't really make much reference to uh, what happened at the Oscars, but did open the act by suggesting that, uh, how was your weekend? And that, of course, brought attention uh, to what had happened to him. That was about it. No other references were made. Well, children are in danger. Nearly double the number of children have been uh, shot on New York City streets in 2022 compared to the same time last year. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt told Fox News that the Save Women's Sports Act would stop female athletes from competing against biological males. Calling the tragedy unavoidable, an amusement park ride safety expert says the teen who died after falling off the Orlando freefall didn't have his harness placed in the correct position. Such a sad and tragic story. Saying President Biden must right the political ship, Democrat strategists are urging the president to sell his agenda in areas of the country with the most important races. Representative Maxine Waters reportedly warned a journalist not to report on a story regarding an event she attended near a homeless encampment in Los Angeles where tensions boiled over and confusion over Section 8 housing vouchers um, was the, the central feature. According to a report from the New York Post, the representative was present at a chaotic event where hundreds of homeless people showed up due to inaccurate social media reports that Section 8 housing vouchers were being distributed. At one point, when it was clear that staff at the event were being overwhelmed, the representative, Representative Waters, reportedly said to the crowd, I want everybody to go home. Of course, these were homeless people and it was a bit off. Well, that comment reportedly triggered an angry response from the crowd, many of whom were homeless. Sean Hannity points out that not only did Joe Biden know about his son's business partners, he actually met with them, but it gets worse. And the investigation into uh, Hunter Biden is continuing. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed into law a pair of bills, one that prevents transgender males from participating in female school sports and another that prohibits that gender reassignment surgery for minors in the state. In a show of twisted priorities, liberal media outlets seem more worried about Biden's poll numbers and the president not getting credit for his administration than they are about inflation, jobs or the economy. The Washington Post, which called the Hunter Biden laptop email story fake, confirmed that emails tying Biden to the CEFC China Energy are in fact real. MSNBC anchor Andrea Mitchell continued to downplay the Hunter Biden story, despite reports to the contrary, as she condemned former President Trump's remarks in a recent interview urging Vladimir Putin to look for answers regarding Biden's business dealings overseas, particularly in Russia. Tara Setmeyer, a guest host on The View, made a grim prediction about Democrats' chances in the midterms, arguing they're in for a bloodbath. A little too graphic for my taste. J. Seth Huston, he points out that the NC2A chose transgender inclusion rather than integrity and fairness in the Leah Thomas debacle. And Matt Schlapp, he warns that big tech keeps trying to silence conservatives and it won't stop until conservatives stop them. Greg Gutfeld reminds that the so-called don't say gay bill doesn't ban the word gay, nor does it ban casual discussions of topics relating to sexual orientation or gender, as Hollywood and the media are saying. Larry Sanger, who's the co-founder of Wikipedia, blamed the website's current leadership for allowing biased and partial actors to ruin the user edited database. Steve Forbes suggests that the blunt truth is that the Fed doesn't know how to fight inflation saying we're in for a bout of economic malpractice. 
And on the meat price hike, meat and poultry prices are expected to climb in the U.S. this year. But pricier meat like steaks should level out. That's according to a new analysis. Now, that's surprising. Steaks will level out. In the tax overhaul, President Biden renewed his push to overhaul the nation's tax code with a proposal to dramatically raise rates on corporations, the ultra-wealthy in the country. Well, Disney is uh, going to halt the use of girls and boys and may kill prince and princess. Now, can you imagine Disney without prince or princess? Well, as the camp, the company rather continues to mock the values of everyday Americans, hoping they'll continue to tolerate the insanity. The question remains, how far must they go before parents finally walk away for good? At the same time, hypocrisy is not an issue for Disney as they offer cruises to uh, Uh, The countries where homosexuality is illegal. Apparently, it's all right there. From Megan Fox, if any of you have trips to Disney planned, maybe consider canceling and forfeiting the $200 deposit and spend the money on a trip to Yellowstone instead. It's an incredible trip, and you won't be supporting the gender Geddon cult. Jerry Bauer, he uh, joins in. He says it's time for Disney and the rest of corporate America to wake up and realize it will never be enough. Uh, These groups are... Uh, unappeasable, so it's time to stop trying to appease them. Russian forces have resumed their bombardment of Kiev, as predicted, and other cities, despite pledges to scale back. At the same time, the Russian military force continues to struggle with low morale and weapons shortages. But they have also accidentally shot down their own aircraft and have refused to carry out orders, one of Britain's spy chiefs said in a speech on Thursday in Australia. U.N. Security Security General Antonio Guterres says that we are facing the highest number of violent conflicts since 1945. More Americans have confidence in Zelensky than they do their own president. It's not really a fair measure, but nonetheless, um, that's what most Americans, according to the Forbes survey, said. A school nurse has been fired for exposing a school for putting an 11-year-old on puberty blockers. She posted about the school on Facebook, outraged at the Connecticut school that that, uh, destroys these children's lives and hides the damage from parents. She's been fired, but the truth is out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to uh, wind our way through the news, but we'll also talk with uh, David Riffle, who's the author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. David Riffle will be our guest in the five o'clock hour, Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. Well, Democrats are preparing for bleak midterms and are working to frighten black Americans into voting in big numbers for the Democrats. Well, the story... um, openly admits they're hoping to message black voters through the conduit of black journalists about the biggest issues facing the African-American community. The range uh, from voting rights and student loan debt to maternal health and confirming what would be the nation's first black female Supreme Court justice. The story does uh, doesn't note, however, that Democrats have no working definition for of a female to back their Supreme Court talk. Well, the Taliban is sending Afghanistan back in time. It was obvious that the Taliban hadn't changed, and uh, talking about modernization was a modernization was an attempt to deter sanctions and diplomatic isolation. But they were believed. Now, with the world watching Ukraine, the group is returning to um, well, its isolation. 
Women and girls are familiar targets. This month, the government broke a promise to reopen schools for girls above the sixth grade. Women can't board airplanes unless traveling with a male relative. Public parks will be segregated by sex. Some male government employees have reportedly reported rather being told to grow a long beard or risk losing their jobs. Cell phone use is banned at universities and foreign dramas will no longer be shown on television. International media like the BBC, which has uh, Pashtu and uh, Persian services are no longer airing. There are still scattered protests, but the government has cracked down on dissent. No surprise there. A new study finds that uh, democracy leads to much happier lives. If you live in a democracy that's at least 25 years old, you're likely to live 14 years longer than people in autocracies. A University of British Columbia study found babies in mature democracies are 78 percent less likely to die in childbirth. Democratization boosts a nation's wealth 20 percent over 25 years and democratization bumps citizens enrollment in secondary education by 70 percent. The Washington Post is the latest paper to change its tune on the younger Biden's laptop. They called it a fake scandal in 2020. They've changed that tune in 2022. Progressives are shying away from the word progressive because now they can uh, easily be identified. They liked the word until the public came to realize what it meant. And now uh, they are stepping away from it, apparently. President Biden is tapping into the U.S. oil reserves while Poland says no more Russian oil and Germany is running out of natural gas. In an effort to address the politically damaging high gas prices, the president plans to tap into the nation's strategic oil reserves and release a million barrels a day over the next six months. This is a politically calculated gesture, not a solution to soaring gas prices and certainly not a long term answer. The U.S. consumes upwards of 20 million barrels of oil a day. The president, too, committed to his green energy um, base uh, to actually do what might help in the shorter term. Unfortunately, uh, his commitment to uh, the climate change agenda means another missed geopolitical opportunity as Poland has announced it will completely eliminate imports of Russian oil. Furthermore, Germany issued a warning on Wednesday that its natural gas supplies are low and called on consumers to reduce their gas consumption, noting that Russia could cut off deliveries if its demand to be paid in rubles is not met. Thus far, Western countries have rejected Russia's ruble payment demand, as doing so would effectively undermine the sanctions raised against the nation over Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. President Biden vowed to end the Title 42 border policy. The title allowed the Trump administration to mitigate masses of migrants illegally entering the U.S., but will still um, be coming. Um, but it will soon rather be coming to an end. The current president has long signaled his desire to end Title 42 with open border Democrats uh, lamenting that it denies migrants due process. However, not all Democrats are on board with the president's decision to end Title 42. Both Democrat senators from Arizona, Kirsten Cinema, and Mark Kelly, as well as two Texas Democrat representatives, have expressed their concerns that ending the program without a new plan to mitigate the sure influx of migrants would overwhelm U.S. Customs and Border Protection that's already overwhelmed. Republicans contend that Title 42 should remain indefinitely. Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a Republican, argued dropping Title 42 without other changes in border policies will produce a tsunami of migrants and drugs. That's just what Biden wants, end quote. Senator Susan Collins will support Katanji Brown-Jackson, even as she rejected Amy Coney Barrett. With friends like this, who needs enemies, Republicans ask. 
Well, Maine's Republican Senator Susan Collins has announced that she will vote in favor of Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee. The clearly radical left judge, a reality uh, uh, demonstrated by her refusal to give a definition to certain terms, will get the green light from Collins. Her rationale for supporting Jackson when she would not do the same for Justice Amy Coney Barrett is simply a political calculation. Uh, In my view, the role under the Constitution assigned to the Senate is to look at the credentials, experience and qualifications of the nominee. It is not to assess whether a nominee reflects the individual ideology of a senator or would vote exactly as an individual senator would want. Well, that's not exactly what happened the last time. The reason Collins voted against um, Amy Coney Barrett was the threat she posed to abortion. The reason she's voting for KJB is her concern over the negative political optics of voting against a black judge. Collins ensures the uh, that uh, the judge will get the bipartisan approval checkmark, something denied to both Barrett and Kavanaugh. A federal judge blasted the double standards of the J6 sentences and two one state uh, I should say 21 states sue to end the mask requirement on public transportation. Unhinged and abnormal, the Fed warns of a housing bubble as the average cost of new homes hits record highs. Arizona's governor signed a bill limiting abortion access. And a Finnish court rebuked the state prosecution of Christians for saying God made men and women different. More on that later in the program. The United Nations Human Rights Chief on Wednesday said there are at least 24 cases in which it appears Russian forces have used cluster bombs in Ukraine and that the indiscriminate attacks on civilians by Russian President Vladimir Putin's army may amount to war crimes. On this day in history, 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain issue an edict expelling Jews from Spanish soil except those willing to convert to Christianity. 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signs an Emergency Conservation Work Act, which creates the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC. 1968, at the conclusion of a nationally broadcast address on Vietnam, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, he stuns listeners by declaring, I shall not seek, nor will I accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. 1975, Gunsmoke closes out 20 seasons on CBS with its first uh, run episode, or final first run episode, The the, uh, Sharecroppers. 1976, the New Jersey Supreme Court rules that Karen Ann Quinlan, a young woman in a persistent vegetative state, can be disconnected from her respirator. Quinlan, who remained unconscious, would die in 1985. And again, this decision was made in 1976. 1991, the Warsaw Pact was formally dissolved. 2005, Terry Schiavo, 41, dies at a hospice in uh, Pinalis Park, Florida, 13 days after her feeding tube was removed in a right-to-die court fight. You might recall the back and forth that went on for months. 2018, amid tight security, Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala and her family returned to her hometown in Pakistan for the first time since she was shot in the head in 2012 for her work as an advocate for young women's education. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, making good on a longstanding threat, President Trump moves to cut direct aid to El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras, whose citizens are fleeing north and overwhelming U.S. resources as part of organized caravans. Well, coming up, uh, we're going to continue to look at some of the news. But in the second hour, we're going to hear from David Riffle. 
Mentoring Warriors is the title of his book, Coming Alongside Men 18 to 30. So that'll uh, be coming up in our second hour. Also, when we return, Arizona will require voters to prove their citizenship and their residency. And activists aren't too pleased. We'll tell you more about it when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Arizona residents will now need to show proof of citizenship in order to vote in a presidential election, sparking anger from some activists. Election integrity means counting every lawful vote and prohibiting any attempt to illegally cast a vote. So says uh, Governor Duff Ducey. Uh, in a letter explaining his decision to sign the bill on Wednesday. Well, the bill requires voters in presidential elections to show proof of citizenship, including by providing a driver's license or tribal ID or a copy of a birth certificate, passport or naturalization documents. The bill also requires newly registered voters to show proof of address that they are, in fact, an Arizona residence. Well, Governor Ducey said the bill is a balanced approach that honors Arizona's history of making voting accessible without sacrificing security in our elections. It was drafted by State Representative Jay Hoffman and developed in part by the Heritage Foundation to eliminate possibilities of fraud. Arizonans have uh, will not have to re-register to vote. It will be business as usual for 99.9 percent of Arizona voters, Hoffman said, of the bill. This only affects a very small percentage of total voters. And even then, we actually grandfathered in all those individuals who are already registered to vote that have some form of proof of citizenship on file. Republicans say roughly 31,500 voters have not shown proof of citizenship. Activists, however, and not surprisingly, fear it could affect hundreds of thousands of people who haven't updated their driver's license or voter registration recently. Arizona's way out on a a limb here, says litigation director for the Fair Elections Center. The provisions in this bill are not really found anywhere in the country. At least not yet. Lawyers for the state's legislature said parts of the measure are unconstitutional and are likely to be thrown uh, thrown out in court. Arizona adopted a 2004 ballot measure that required voters to show proof of citizenship to vote in elections. The measure was challenged and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 2013 that Arizona could adopt its own rules on voter eligibility for state elections, but had to adhere to federal voter registration forms for federal elections. And we're talking about the presidential election. The federal forms require voters to attest they are citizens, but do not have to show proof. Well, the ruling ultimately resulted in the 31,500 Arizonans without proof of citizenship who can only vote in federal elections and not in state elections, according to the Arizona Secretary of State. No doubt this will be challenged. Well, a series of videos revealed the Walt Disney Corporation's not at all secret gay agenda as Disney finds itself at the center of national debate over gay rights, transgenderism and parental rights. Well, the videos obtained by investigative journalist Christopher Rufo and posted Tuesday on Twitter exposed Disney executives inside all hands uh, meeting in response to Florida's House Bill 1557, the parental rights education bill, which was recently signed into law by the governor DeSantis. The law prohibits schools from instructing young children in kindergarten through third grade on sexual orientation and gender identity dubbed as the Don't Say Gay Bill, although the legislation never used the word. Rufo, who previously reported on the embrace of critical race theory within Disney, said the entertainment giant has fallen prey to identity politics. 
Executives have empowered activists within the company and now seem unable to resist their demands, Rufo wrote. In one video, Carrie Burke, president of Disney General Entertainment, says she aims to have at least half of the characters in upcoming stories identify as LGBT or racial minorities. We have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and yet we don't have enough leads and narratives in which gay characters just get to be characters and not have to be out gay store about gay stories, she said. In another video, Latoya Revenue, uh, an executive producer, said Disney's leadership has been welcoming and gave her freedom to promote her promote her gay agenda in films. I don't have to be afraid. Let's have those two characters kiss in the background. I was just uh, wherever I could, just basically adding queerness. Uh, She went on to say no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. Well, Alan March, who is a production a coordinator for Disney said that his team has been open to exploring queer stories. According to March, he put together a character tracker to ensure that there's enough gender non-conforming characters and to make sure that they're in leading roles. It's not just a number numbers game of how many LGBTQ plus characters you have. March said the more centered a story is on a character, the more nuanced you get. Uh, to get the store to get into their story. Vivian Ware, Disney's diversity and inclusion manager, said the company has worked to eradicate any mention of ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, instead training the staff at theme parks to welcome dreamers of all age. Uh, ages rather. Last week, some Disney employees staged a walkout protest alleging the company had not done enough to support LGBT causes. Other employees released a letter arguing Disney created an environment of fear for conservative employees who worry that uh, they'll be fired for not going along with the progressive orthodoxy that runs rampant in the company. Uh, DeSantis responded to the leaked videos on Fox News, saying, you've got to wonder why is the uh, hill to die? Why is this the hill to die on to have transgenderism injected into kindergarten classrooms or woke gender ideology injected into second grade classrooms? It's just an odd manifestation of their corporate values that they actually do Disney cruises to the Caribbean island nation of Dominica, which criminalizes homosexuality. Jay Richards was a senior uh, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation writing on the subject. But once again, Disney employees who support parental rights far outnumber the loud minority, according to Jose Costillo. Uh, Castillo says uh, a current uh, Walt Disney Company employee who's running for Congress in Florida as a Republican uh, told Fox News Digital that the silent majority of Disney employees support the parental right law, House Bill 1557, despite the loud minority leading Disney to take a stance against the law, which critics have branded the don't say gay law. There's immense pressure to toe the company line, Castillo said. However, the reality is that those drawing attention to this uh, this issue are in the minority. The Disney cast members who support the parental rights defended um, by House Bill 1557 far outnumber those who are protesting against it. He claimed that Disney and similar corporations listen to the loudest voices in the crowd, even though the silent majority of employees disagree. That's why I am standing up for our shared conservative values, he said, to show other conservative cast members like me that we need to speak up and stand strong. Well, employees at Disney staged a protest earlier this month in response to what they regarded as an insufficient condemnation of the Florida bill by Disney. Prohibiting classroom instruction was the 
point, not casual discussion of, on sexual orientation and gender identity with the children, third grade and younger, or in a matter that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Well, despite critics branding it the don't say gay bill, it doesn't uh, ban the word or uh, conversation. It does uh, exclude it from curriculum. Disney condemned the bill in an official statement uh, on Monday saying um, the House Florida's House Bill 1557, also known as I don't even need to say it again, should never have passed and should never have been signed into law. The statement posted on the Walt Disney Company's Twitter page reads, our goal as a company is for this law to be repealed by the legislature or struck down in the courts. And we remain committed to supporting the national and state organization working to achieve that. So Disney is apparently all in on the subject. We are dedicated to standing up for the rights and safety of others. Well, the Disney employee claimed that the company's attack on the law has Disney straying far away from the values that made the company the household name all Americans know and love. And he cited the Walt Disney Company's official mission statement suggesting his employer needs uh, to return to it. The mission of the Walt Disney Company... Uh, is to entertain, inform, and inspire people around the globe through the power of unparalleled uh, storytelling reflecting the iconic brands, creative minds, and innovative technologies that make ours the world's premier entertainment company, the statement reads. Perhaps uh, bolstering Castillo's argument that a silent majority of employees support the law, a group of employees urged Disney to abandon its stance against the Florida law in an open letter urging the company to adopt a politically neutral stance Castillo said he was not part of that effort, but he supports it. And in fact, Disney uh, did have a neutral stance until louder voices from within the employee pool began to speak rather loudly. We'll see what happens um, in the uh, in the future with Disney, although they've stated pretty much what their priorities will be. President Biden's administration has released a series of documents encouraging gender reassignment surgery and hormone treatment for minors. The Department of Health and Human Services Office of Population Affairs released a document on Thursday. It was titled Gender Affirming Care and Young People. The same day, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network, another subset of the HHS, released a parallel document titled Gender Affirming Care is Trauma-Informed Care. Well, the HHS documents describe what it calls appropriate treatment for transgender adolescents, including top surgery to create male typical chest shape or enhanced breasts and bottom surgery, surgery on genitals and reproductive organs, facial feminization and other procedures. And again, we're talking about children, medical and um, physiosocial or psychosocial gender affirming health care practices have been demonstrated to yield lower rates of adverse health, mental health outcomes, build self-esteem and improve overall quality of life for transgender and gender diverse Youth, the OPA release states. Now, I should mention that there is a growing number of professionals, healthcare professionals, surgeons, as well as sociologists and psychologists who disagree. They're simply disregarded, and the debate has um, has been quieted. The NCTSN document is far longer than the brief outline provided by the OPA, but re- reiterates the same thought process and explanation for minors receiving alterations to their genitalia. For transgender and non-binary children and adolescents, early gender-affirming care is crucial to overall health and well-being as it allows the child or adolescent to focus on social transition and can increase their confidence while navigating the health care system. 
they go on to say. Now, the sad thing to me is that, there again, the, the debate is no longer welcome. Uh, there are professionals, qualified professionals on the other side of the issue who argue vehemently that this is doing violence against young people and, in fact, um, does mental health harm to them. But again, one side has been uh, accepted and apparently there's no room for debate any longer. Well, animosities have come to an end and we would like to live peacefully without internal or external enemies. That's a quote from a Taliban spokesman speaking in August. We will be witnessing the formation of a strong Islamic and inclusive government. How's that going? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it was obvious that the Taliban hadn't changed and talking about modernization was an attempt to deter sanctions and diplomatic isolation. Now, with the world watching Ukraine, the group is returning to its form. Women and girls are familiar targets, and this month the government broke a promise to reopen their schools. The edicts stem from the demands of the Taliban's hardline supreme leader, who is apparently trying to steer the country back to the late 1990s when the Taliban had banned women from education and public spaces and outlawed music, television and many sports. The Associated Press reports, citing a major Taliban official and Afghan familiar with the Taliban's leadership. Well, last month, the Taliban announced a ban on Afghans leaving the country. Although a government spokesman later walked that back, the risk of a ban on exits is real, however. That could be a death sentence for some of the thousands of America's uh, Afghan allies and their family members still trapped in the country. Afghanistan became a sanctuary for al-Qaeda the last time it was uh, ruled by the Taliban, which hasn't cut ties with a terror group. General Kenneth McKenzie of the Central Command said recently the U.S. is tracking terrorist activity in the country but hasn't made an over-the-horizon strike since U.S. troops departed. We were told that over-the-horizon was our way of, uh, first of all, seeking justice for those U.S. military personnel who were killed during the period of exit, but that has not been the case. The chaotic and deadly U.S. withdrawal eroded U.S. security and credibility there, but... uh, Spare a thought for the Afghans now ruled by barbarians. They will suffer the most and are suffering. Some are still in hiding. Some desperately want to leave the country, but increasingly that is not going to be possible. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And then in the second hour, David Riffle, mentoring warriors coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're going to uh, hear from David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. We'll also bring you up to date on what happened with the Finnish MP and the Lutheran bishop in Finland who were charged with hate crimes. The disposition of the case has been announced, although it may not be over. We'll let you know what happened. Also want to let you know that KPDQ is welcoming a new ministry to our program lineup, Real Life Radio with Pastor Jack Hibbs. In fact, we've interviewed him here on the program a couple of times. The program is designed to bring you chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. He tackles current issues and important topics through the filter of the timeless truth of God's Word. You can hear Real Life Radio weekday mornings at 9.30 and uh, learn more about the program and bonus times to listen on kpdq.com. So check that out. Again, the program Real Life Radio with Pastor Jack Hibbs. 
Well, Justice Thomas is under fire. He is the uh, the lone African-American justice on the court, but he happens to be a conservative, which means he's something less than an African-American in the minds of some who oppose him. Well, the controversy centers around some of his wife's political views. If his wife's political views are enough to warrant recusal, well, then the Supreme Court might never have a full complement of nine ever again. Well, the Wall Street Journal in their editorial said this about Justice Thomas and whether or not he should recuse himself from elections cases, given his wife's political views. Now, there's also now been a call from some uh, members of Congress for him to step down altogether based on his wife's views. This is what the editorial board said. We argued on Saturday that the leak of Jeannie Thomas's text messages gathered by the House January 6th special committee was intended to damage her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas, and the Supreme Court. Vindication certainly didn't take long. Democrats and their media allies quickly sped past Jeannie to demand that Justice Thomas resign. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or be impeached, Representative Ilhan Omar, or at least recuse himself from hearing cases related to elections, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Well, the point of the pile on is to hurt the reputations of the justice, reputation singular of the justice, as part of the larger effort to delegitimize the current Supreme Court. Well, the justices are considering cases on abortion, gun rights, racial preferences, and the administrative state that Democrats fear will go against their policy preferences. If you doubt the court itself is a target, note this headline from the Washington Post John Roberts must be at his limit. End quote. Or this from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Justice Thomas, bias on Trump destroys Supreme Court integrity. He must recuse. End quote. Well, the right answer is that Jeannie Thomas is no threat to the court, no matter how bizarre her views about the 2020 election might have been. She doesn't sit on the court, and there's no reason to believe her personal political views influence the judicial impartiality of Justice Thomas. Again, if that same metric were imposed on other members of the court, we probably would never have a full compliment. The Wall Street Journal goes on. Moreover, any decision about recusal is entirely Justice Thomas's to make. Our own view is that the justice has what our friends at the New York Sun call the duty to sit on these cases and that recusal would be an abdication of that duty. The general principle for recusal listed in the U.S. Code is that a judge should remove him or herself from any case in which the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. The justices follow this principle, but they have an obligation that doesn't apply to other judges. Lower court judges can freely substitute for one another. Chief Justice Roberts wrote in addressing the recusal issue in his 2011 annual report on the federal judiciary. But the Supreme Court consists of nine members who always sit together. And if a justice withdraws from a case, the court must sit without its full membership. The judge, uh, the chief justice continued, a justice accordingly cannot withdraw from a case as a matter of convenience or simply to avoid controversy, end quote. Specifically, The chief cited the 1924 Canons of Judicial Ethics that addresses judicial independence. It provides, the uh, chief justice wrote, uh, that a judge should not be swayed by partisan demands, public clamor or considerations of personal popularity or notoriety, nor be apprehensive of unjust criticism. Such concerns have no role to play in deciding a question of recusal, end quote. Well, under this standard, a justice should recuse if... 
uh, he has some financial or significant personal interest in one of the parties to the case, or if the justice, a spouse or family member is a party of the uh, litigation. Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson recently said she would recuse from the case challenging Harvard's admission standards because she is a member of the Harvard's Board of Overseers. This is an appropriate reason for recusal. But Jeannie Thomas's personal views on the election do not make her a party to any case likely to come before the court. In her text messages in 2020 and 2021 to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, she was expressing her personal political views that the 2020 election had been stolen. Very few cases that come before the court aren't political in some sense. If a spouse's political views are grounds for recusal, say on abortion, the court might never have a full complement of nine. That's uh, that result may be precisely the result that Democrats and media critics of Jeannie and Justice Thomas want to achieve with their recusal demands. Well, the late Justice Antonin Scalia took up the issue of media and political criticism in a notable and relevant memorandum. On recusal back in 2004, the case involving his hunting trip with Vice President Dick Cheney and others. Recusing in the face of such charges would give elements of the press a veto over participation of any justice who had social contacts with or were even known to be friends of a named official that is intolerant. Then January, or rather the January 6th committee had no cause to leak Jeannie Thomas's texts other than to embarrass her and the justice. And sure enough, some committee members are now saying they may call Mrs. Thomas to testify in a bid for more critical headlines. Justice Thomas has every right and reason to avoid this partisan clamor and hear election cases as if his wife had never sent those texts. So you'll be hearing more calls and louder voices suggesting that Justice uh, Thomas should step away from the court. But uh, the chief justice is written on the subject and others as well, and it doesn't seem that this would rise to the occasion in which recusal would be merited. We've got um, coming up a conversation with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. Coming alongside men 18 to 30 years of age, the book is published by Karis. We'll also take a look at Finnish MP and Bishop from Finland who have been cleared of hate crimes charges. We'll tell you what happened and what's likely to happen next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest takes on a challenge, the challenge of helping young men navigate through life well. He tackles in the book we're going to be talking about the challenging topic of how to be a mentor and how to uh, be mentored. He brings his decades of mentoring practice to the pages of his book, Mentoring Warriors, Coming Alongside Men 18 to 30 Years Old. Now, some of you already know the need for this kind of of mentoring relationship for young men. Others might need to learn a bit more about it. So David Riffle joins us to talk about just that. David Riffle is the foundation, uh, or I should say founder and executive director of Mentoring Warriors. It's an organization that's dedicated to equipping men to mentor and preparing warriors, men ages to 1830, for life. Having gone through his warrior years, essentially mentorless, God placed him uh, in his heart uh, a heart for warriors to come alongside them as they figure life out. He and his uh, Canadian wife live in Kansas. They have two married children, enjoy spending time at their family cottage in Ontario. And he joins us today to talk about mentoring warriors coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. David Riffle, thank you so much for joining us. 
let's begin to talk uh, by talking a bit about um, Mentoring Warriors, the organization that you have founded. My understanding is you are an architect by trade. Tell us a little bit about your work in mentoring. Sure, yeah. I'm an, I like always say, too, I'm an architect by day and a, and a mentor by night. But the reality is mentoring is uh, kind of full circle. The Lord's really done some things over the probably last decades or so of me mentoring young men that the Lord's just placed on my heart through my own experiences in my own mentor or my own warrior days that I uh, saw the need for it. And so what basically happened, to kind of give you an idea of how it started, about 10 years ago, the church we're attending had in their high school ministry an opportunity for adults to sign up to be prayer warriors for high school students. Well, our son Justin was a freshman back then, and the way the, the way the, uh, the small groups were organized were by grade and by gender. So there'd be a bunch of guys over at our house playing basketball out in the front, front yard in the, in the driveway, and then he'd come in for a Bible study and small group time. And there were some new, new guys to the church, and so I realized, you know, hey, I'm going to get to know these guys one way or the other because they're hanging around my son, so why don't I sign up to be a prayer warrior for a couple of them? So I did, and we started swapping, like, text, uh, texting back and forth, prayer requests, and eventually started to meet with them one-on-one, maybe every month or two like that, and then we started doing some things together. And as that happened, what happened over that time, these young guys are now growing up to be 16, 17 years old. They meet up with me and they start opening up their heart to me about struggles they're going through in cases of pornography or other things that they're struggling with. And all of a sudden I realized that um, I've become this safe place for them to figure out how are they going to manage through or navigate through life Mm -hmm. and those days that are moving on towards basically young adulthood. So that's how it all kind of got started for me. Um, And so out of all of that, a little kind of a little mix of all that, about four and a half years ago, two weeks after my daughter's uh, wedding, I unexpectedly, of course the Lord knew, but I didn't, I had uh, quadruple heart bypass surgery. So when a guy's in your 50s and you have heart surgery, it really rocks your world. And, and you want to know, Lord, what is my purpose? What, where am I moving forward? So out of that, out of that, coupled with some of my growing up experiences, God really placed in me a hunger. What can I do to start helping raise up men to be mentors and to pour into the next generation of young guys? So that's how the book came about. And that's how Mentoring Warriors of the Ministry came about as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, describe the, the word warriors in the context of mentoring, because some might misunderstand um, what that means when you're talking about young men 18 to 30. Sure. So I like to look at it this way. There's there's kind of like six, I call them like six stages of manhood. There's the boy, and then when they get to around 13, they turn into a, what we call the cowboy stage. And then, then roughly around 18 to about 30, they turn into the warrior. And the warrior is the guy that he's trying to figure out life out. He's on the frontier. There's a lot of different areas of life that he, um, he's just trying to, trying to make sense of, whether it's in relationships or in faith or in his career, with education, um, even his manhood identity, uh, skills, self-management, life skills. So he's trying to figure those out. And that's the warrior stage because so many of the, so many of the choices that he makes in those years, in those 10, 12 years, are going to impact him for the rest of his life. 
most men, if they're going to get married, not all of them, but most of them get married sometime during their warrior stage. Um, and then the next stages, when they move into their 30s and 40s, they're basically establishing their role as a husband, as a dad, as, a, as an employee or an owner of a company. And then eventually, they become an older guy, Lord willing, but they're walking with the Lord. And then they become what we call a sage, kind of that guy that has a lot of wisdom and that can pour into the previous generation. So a warrior is that guy, he's, he's, on, he's on the battlefront. And where, where will the choices he has, he makes, where will it take him next? Mm, mm. In, our, in our culture, um, there's some significant challenges. One of the things that you point out is that suicide for young men is three and a half times higher than that of young women. What are some of the challenges that young men in our culture today that seem to be a bit adrift uh, that they face? Well, you know, when uh, I've had a couple of experiences with that. So when I was 17, I struggled with suicidal thoughts. And I can tell you from personal experience, even though I had made a faith commitment to Christ at 12, there, because of my years up to 17, I really hadn't been mentored, really hadn't been guided. I struggle with what is my purpose? How, what is my identity? And so I know a lot of guys that struggle in that area of, of, of thinking of suicide or attempting it. Um, it's a cry for help. Here a couple of years ago, one of the young men that I mentor um, calls me up and says, "Hey, can you?" Or he texts me and he says, "Can you keep a secret?" I said, it "Depends on what it is." And he goes, "I have a gun." Well, he was—he uh, had a handgun and he was ready to uh, take his life, and he mm. was reaching out to me. Why was he calling me? Why was he reaching me? Because he's asking for help. Um, here, just uh, about eight, ten months ago, another young man who was around eighteen or nineteen. Um, same thing. He had a rope and he was going to hang himself. He had broken up with his girlfriend and just felt like there was no other options for him. And thankfully, the Lord led him through an opportunity where he could realize there was hope. I think what guys, when they're struggling like that, I think it boils down to really two questions that I believe are ultimately God-given in every, every man. And I like to say it this way, from the time He's a little toddler until a man dies. The two questions that are driving him and everything is, does anybody actually delight in me? Does mm. anybody, does my life matter? Does anybody actually love me unconditionally? Now, we know that's in Christ, but he's looking for that in some sort of relationship, and typically in a man who can lead him, whether it's his father or a relative, an uncle, or a man in his church, he's looking for that. Does someone delight in me? And then the second question that they're asking, and I've, I've asked this of myself, do I have what it takes to be a man? This idea of validation. Can I do the next step in my life? And when guys hit those, hit those warrior ages, that warrior age, and they're facing those um, frontiers, as I call them, those new challenges, sometimes anxiety gets to them, fear. They start believing lies that uh, they're not good enough or they don't have what it takes. And um, it's when a mentor can step into their lives or they feel safe enough to reach out and say, hey, I, I've got a gun. And I'm asking basically what he's doing by his emotions and actions, asking for help. When a mentor can step in there, 
the Lord can use that relationship to circumvent what could be otherwise uh, a tragic loss of a, a tragic loss of a young man. So Absolutely. I would say those two things, that idea of delight and of validation, are core to what those young men are searching for. We are talking this afternoon with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. We'll continue that conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. It's an excellent book, very practical to help uh, men to prepare to mentor other younger men between the ages of 18 to 30. One of the things that you say is um, men were not intended to, particularly young men, were not intended to walk through life alone. Um, we tend to think of men as being... Um, independent and and sort of eschewing this notion of being close to other men. But what do you mean when you say young men were never meant to do life alone? And perhaps that relates to the two questions you just raised before the break about the things that that all men uh, come to at some point in their life. Right. You know, when when God says we're made in his image, he talks about the fact that we're also made for relationship. And God never intended for man, you know, it says when in Genesis, when, when God made Adam, you know, he was very good, but he said, if it's not good, that he's alone. So God's wired it within the Trinity to have a relationship, and he's wired it in us to want to have that vertical relationship with the Lord. But also he's wired us to have what I call horizontal or human relationships. And one of the things that you see throughout Scripture, Old Testament, in the New Testament, is this idea of older generations speaking into the younger generations. Um, It says in, I think it's Judges chapter 2, it's talking about when um, Joshua died. He's like 110 years old. And a few verses later, it says that another generation grew up who did not know the ways of the Lord, nor experienced them. And it says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and so it's one of those things where I believe one of the challenges we have um, with mentoring is we've become so siloed in our generational thinking that we just mm-hmm. think of our own generation, and we've lost that idea that God's put me on this planet. He's put me on this earth for a purpose, and that purpose is to speak into the lives of the next generation. I was, I was at a conference this weekend, a men's conference, and... Uh, we were talking about mentoring warriors, and I, I told those men, I said, the gospel is not going to stop on my watch. Um, I'm going to be like Paul, who was to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And then in that short little verse, it's talking about four generations. So men need each other. We weren't made to live life alone because the way that men learn is actually in having those iron sharpens iron, man-to-man kind of relationships. I know when I'm held accountable in a godly man-to-man type of relationship like that, I excel in whatever that area of my, my life is. And when I don't have that iron sharpens iron that man who's speaking into my life, um, I start to flounder. And so I, I just really see that's how God's wired us as men. 
yeah. why we can't go this alone. You mentioned six key areas of life that are based on biblical principles for healthy mentoring relationships. Can you share what those are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the first one is self-management, and it's everything from basically, you know, time management, budgets. Um, one young man um, had gotten out of prison and had been in for four years. He's 23 now and just had no idea how to manage his time or to manage his budget. So I would sit down with him and help him kind of process through, and we'd have some accountability on how he managed his money and, and things like that. So self-management, just guys learning how to prioritize and understand what's important. Um, another one is uh, life skills. And I, a lot of times I like to joke on that one and say, you know, a lot of guys in the warrior stage, they like to go to YouTube. Well, this is how I'm going to change my tire or change my oil or fix the toilet. And YouTube has its place. But we need to learn life skills and the use of our hands. And often that comes through having another guy who's been there, has experience in there, asking older guys into our lives to help them. So life skills is another one. Another big one is education and career. Um, the whole question is, what am I going to be when I grow up? Uh, it always boils down to a lot of times um, how's God wired you? Um, give you an example. One of the young men that I mentor uh, was going down the path of mechanical engineering in university because that's what his dad did. Well, he come to find out he hated math. He struggled so bad with it. And through much prayer and conversation with myself and some other men and also with his advisors, he realized that where his aptitudes were, his skills and interests, was in graphic design. And so he switched majors, and I have watched that young man just soar because he's finally figuring out how God's wired him. And the reality is uh, that young man is the one that created our Mentoring Warriors logo. So hmm. that's, that's a good example of just working with the guys on education and career. The fourth one is faith, and this one really is a core to a young man. If they've grown up in a Christian family— most warrior-age men, even if they've grown up in a Christian family, will have a tendency to um, not go to church, and they'll walk away from Jesus for a while. And so a lot of times the question is, is this my faith? Is it my parents' faith? What do I really believe? We'll often have conversations about doctrine and what the Scriptures say, and who is Jesus, and what does it mean not just to know Jesus in my head, but to have a living actual living relationship with him. So faith is very, very important. The fifth one is um, relationships. You know, it says in Genesis that uh, God says to man that he shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So there's that part of leaving mom and dad, leaving the support of the home, moving out, and there's also that, that other challenge of meeting a girl. Is this the woman God has for me? I just had lunch today with a young man who is dating a girl, and um, it's that, is this the woman? You know, he's 22 years old, and, and how do I discern, is this the relationship that God, do I want to, you know, is this the one I want to mm -hmm. marry? Uh, and then the sixth one, the last one, is what I call identity, manhood identity. What does it mean to be a man? You know, sometimes we can joke and say, well, is a man because he's got a gun and he has a plaid shirt, is that a man? Or, or what is a man? You know, how, what is it? And it's not really about, what you wear, it's, it's about your character. And the scriptures teach a lot about 
that godly character. And the more that a man walks with Christ, the more his character is going to grow. And as a segue to that or a side to that identity is often we talk about sexual purity. That is a big issue with a lot of young men. Um, Mm -hmm. How do they practice godly self-control? How do they live out practicing holiness as a single man? And then how do they practice that, frankly, when they get married in a godly way? So those are the six areas, self-management, life skills, education, career, faith, relationships, and manhood identity. Those are the big ones we talk about all the time. We're talking about the book Mentoring Warriors. My guest, David Riffle. What does a successful or an unsuccessful mentoring relationship look like? Well, I can tell you on the on the successful side, I'll tell you what that is, and I'll give you maybe a, a tip on how you know if it's going to be an unsuccessful one. On the successful side, I'm going to say there's three things that um, would always need to happen when you get together. One is, in one form or fashion, you guys spend some time in the Word. And that could be anything from a, a formal Bible study to just memorizing Scripture together to challenging each other on how you're going to apply or live out some of God's Word. But always, in one form or fashion or another, get the Word into your conversation. The second one, I say this just always, always, always pray together. Bring not just uh, the day's events, but God, what are some ways that you need to father my heart, and how can my mentor help me in this process? So pray together. And then the third thing that I help, think helps with a successful mentoring relationship is go do something fun together. Do something you guys like. Maybe it is shooting guns or going fishing or watching the races or, or going to a basketball game or going camping or whatever it is, but do things to build a commonality. And what happens is when you do that relational aspect of mentoring, it creates a safe environment so that some of the deeper things that in a young man's heart has a safe place where they can be dealt with and the Lord can be brought into it. So those are three things, the word, the prayer, and doing something fun together. On the flip side, I can tell you what does not help is when a mentor enables the problem that the warrior is having, whether it's finances, and I can tell you a story about that, or whether it's just in other areas of his life, uh, don't be the person that's enabling the problem. Um, that's not for a healthy, healthy relationship at all. The book is titled Mentoring Warriors. David Riffle is the author. It's an excellent practical resource for those who are looking to mentor young men 18 to 30. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Ryan Foley from the Christian Post brought us up to date on what's happening in a Finnish court that had charged two individuals with a crime because they've made a reference to uh, the subject of homosexuality from a biblical perspective. Well, we've learned that a Finnish court has dismissed all hate speech charges. They were filed against a member of parliament and a bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese of Finland over their religious beliefs, their biblical view that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Now, this is extraordinary, but it also gives you the broader context of the challenge the church faces, not just here at home, but around the world. Well, a three-judge panel on the Helsinki District Court determined in a unanimous ruling on Wednesday 
that the government should not be interpreting biblical concepts. Now, the court reasoned that statements made by the former interior minister and Christian Democratic Party leader didn't constitute hate speech, even though they may have offended members of the LGBT community. Now, the court ordered the prosecution to pay the legal costs associated with that trial. Well, the uh, member of Congress, or I should say member of Parliament, uh, said that she felt a weight lifted off her shoulders after being acquitted. She hopes the ruling will prevent others from having to go through the same ordeal. I'm relieved, I'm happy, and grateful to God and to all the people that have supported me, she said, proclaiming at a press conference on Wednesday. Alliance Defending Freedom International which is representing the pair, said in a statement that the district court upheld the right of of free speech. Well, the two of them, and I'm avoiding saying their names because I don't want to mispronounce them, they faced prosecution of their roles in creating and publishing a 2004 pamphlet. It was titled Male and Female. He created them. Homosexual relationships challenge the Christian concept of humanity. And this was uh, considered by some a prosecutable event, and a crime. The indictment accused them of incitement to hatred against a group. The bishop explained at a press conference last year that the charges fall under the section of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So they were facing serious charges. He said they were accused of sharing opinions and allegations defaming and insulting homosexuals as a group based on their sexual orientation. In addition to the pamphlet, Uh, She faced criminal charges for a 2019 tweet criticizing the leadership of the Finnish Lutheran Church for supporting LGBT Pride Month and sharing her beliefs about homosexuality in a radio program appearance that same year. Um, She could have faced two years in prison and a fine if convicted. Paul Coleman, who's executive director of Alliance Defending Freedom International, praised the court's ruling as an important decision, which upholds the fundamental right of freedom of speech in Finland, which has historically been a Christian nation. He described the ability for people to share their beliefs without fear of censorship as the foundation of every free and democratic society. Criminalizing speech through so-called hate speech laws shuts down important public debates and poses a grave threat to our democracies. He went on to say, well, Ranison, who was one of the pair, said that the ruling was not what she expected. Not for a second did I believe that I had committed anything illegal in my writings and statements. She believes that the prosecutors will likely appeal the ruling, so it may not be over. If it happens, I'm ready to defend freedom of speech and religion in all necessary courts, also in the European Court of Human Rights, if needed. The lawmaker praised the international outcry she received after being charged last year, saying, I've received thousands of supporting messages through different channels, letters. Still, every day I get messages from many countries about how people are praying for me and praying for Finland and several churches, congregations and Christian communities have expressed their concern for the situation. She said the international interest in her case comes from the surprise to many that the questioning of free speech is possible in a country like Finland, which has a good reputation internationally. She believes many worldwide believe that if such a prosecution could happen in Finland, the same is possible anywhere. And I have to tell you, I've been studying the Gospel of Matthew and we're uh, I just finished the 24th chapter in which Jesus describes to his disciples what to expect before his second coming. And uh, the increase in, in 
persecution is one of the things that he mentions among many things. And this is perhaps an example in places where it's unexpected. Christians are being challenged for holding a biblical worldview. She went on to say while uh, she lamented the ordeal she's had to go through for nearly three years, she acknowledged that she felt great joy about being able to speak about the gospel and the atonement of Jesus during these couple of years. She saw it not just as a prosecution, but an opportunity. My writings and statements under investigation are in all linked to the Bible's teaching on marriage, living as a man and a woman, as well as the Apostle Paul's teaching on sin. The points of view over which I stood accused uh, do not deviate from the so-called classical Christian view, nor does my view on marriage deviate from the official policy of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland. She believes her prosecution has made some people afraid of the consequences of expressing their faith and convictions in public. She quoted from the Helsinki District Court's 28-page decision, where the three-judge panel ruled that the district court considers that the purpose of Her writing was not to insult or offend homosexuals, but to defend the concept of family and marriage between a man and a woman, according to her religious beliefs. Coleman said the judges also rule that uh, she did not. uh, She did rather during her radio appearance was answered questions that were posed and tried to justify her opinions as part of a debate. Uh, Her answers have represented the view of the faith, Coleman said, translating the ruling written in Finnish. There must be an overriding social reason for interfering with and restricting freedom of expression. Well, Sam Brownback, who formerly served as U.S. Ambassador for International Religious Freedom, stressed in a tweet that the case should never have gone this far. It is a scandal that this case was prosecuted in the first place, he tweeted. But it was, and it's just the latest example of what the scriptures seem to suggest will be a tightening of rules as to what is permitted and what may cost you if you express a clear biblical perspective on any number of issues. And the challenge for us is to prepare ahead of time. Am I willing for the sake of the gospel to suffer loss? Uh, Jesus himself said that would come. We read in the scriptures how many believers before us, those who faithfully carry the gospel right up to our present day, how many of them suffered. We're aware that uh, I believe the statistic I read most recently was about 80 percent of believers worldwide suffer some form of persecution. That's a staggering number, but it uh, certainly falls in line with what Jesus said we should expect. There will be tribulation if we are faithfully walking out our faith. There's going to be opposition in some places. It's more dramatic than others, but we shouldn't be surprised or we shouldn't try to avoid those situations because Jesus said when we're faithfully walking with him, that's what we will expect. So I was um, I was happy to read and this was last week when it first came out. I was happy to read that the Finnish MP and the bishop have been cleared of hate crime charges for views on homosexuality. I'm also reminded that here in this country. If you hold a biblical worldview on any number of issues, those two in particular, it may in the very short term cost you a great deal position. It may cost you um, uh, advancement in your line of work. It may cost you in any number of ways. And the question is, am I willing to speak truth in love as we're commanded in Scripture Or am I just going to hide in a corner and hope nobody figures out that I'm actually a Christ follower? Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Sam Moppin for engineering today's program. And I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Now, tomorrow, we'll take a look at the headline news. We'll also take a brief look at the lighter side of the news and share this week's Christian outlook. So I hope you'll join us. Have a great night.
Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.